Every day I'm hustling, 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 hustling. Every day I'm hustling, 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 every day I'm Welcome to a Cigar Hustlers Podcast, where we take a closer look at the people of the cigar industry with your host, Mike and Mike. Hi, I'm Mike. And I'm Mike also. This is a Cigar Hustlers Podcast. Should we say it in unison? It sounds a little... I like that. Do you like it? Okay, we'll keep that in. It's very nice. Um, We have a very special guest today, one Mr. Steve Saka of Dunbarton Tobacco. How are you, Steve? I'm good, Mike and Mike. How are you guys doing? <laughs> we like nope. to keep it easy for everybody. We didn't get onto the phonetic uh, spelling of, of my last name yet either. Yeah, uh, actually, you know, I kind of asked your brother and he told me I basically should just learn how to say stomp on cabbage. Step on cabbage. Step yeah. on cabbage, yeah. yes. Mm-hmm. But, but that isn't correct, right? It's got to be a That's little That's about bit. as close as us normal people can get to. It's close enough. I mean, step on cabbage is the actual. Step on cabbage. There you go. Step on cabbage. Uh-huh. Not, not bad. The bad part is I won't remember. You know, it's weird because, you know, I always thought I was just a complete idiot because, you know, I spent <laughs> the last 30 years. I've I spent a lot of time in Latin America, Central America, and my Spanish is awful. Right. And it's always been awful. And I've tried to learn multiple times. And finally, I had come to the realization um, that I'm partially tone deaf. No shit. Yeah. And I, I never, ever thought about it. But uh, it's actually a problem for me, and it's been a problem forever. And uh, so, how the hell does that, that affect you, though? You know, it's the inflections. Yeah, it's uh, the inflections. It's, uh, I don't hear the nuances, and it kind of and it kind of makes sense because I'm not a big music buff guy. Right. So oh, well, having yeah, music in the sense. background is kind of like, eh, I could take it, I could leave it, because I don't think I'm getting the full audio experience. Right. When I listen to music. So there's a couple of special things going on with this particular podcast. One is we've never really got to sit down and, and bullshit on a, on a one-on-one level, which we just kind of started to do, yeah. uh, you know, the past couple hours, which is really nice. The other special thing about this podcast is both ACs are broken at Cigar Hustler. <laughs> it is hot as hell. And, uh, and, we and I'm 350 <laughs> pounds, and I'm in Central Florida, and uh, I got I got I got sweat dripping off my. Uh, <laughs> so so yeah. So there's gonna oh, be yeah, he's from up north. <laughs> this is terribly so hot, you know this this may or. May may not be a faster podcast than normal. Okay, but thank you for coming in, Steve. It's yeah. nice seeing you. But this is, you know... Ice cream now! <laughs> Turn the fans back on. This is, it is what it is, right? So, um, our podcast is more about, obviously, the origin of the people in the cigar industry. So, okay. we wanted to kind of start off with you and what you did prior to, and you have a, an engineering degree, is that correct? Can I ask one ground rule first? Yeah, Certainly. absolutely. Uh, I'm a little bit salty language-wise. Is that permissible or not? That's fucking good to know. (laughs) I'm terrible. Which is kind of where the origin begins. Um, I was. uh, I didn't have an engineering degree. Okay. I actually have no degree. I'm completely uneducated. I uh, I I enlisted in the. uh, I enlisted in the service when I was 17. The navy. I was actually in the navy, and. and then I, uh, my wife and I got married at 19, and we were pregnant like literally like 10 months later. And uh, ever since that point, I've just been working. No shit. Yeah, I've never had the. I always say that eventually someday I'm going to retire. Right. I'm going to go to school and like get a degree in like Western philosophy <laughs> or something <laughs> that's totally useless. Yeah, something useless. But entertaining, yes. you know. Um, but uh, yeah. Maybe but music. 
get a degree in music. But I was a twidget. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there you go. I was a twidget in the Navy, which basically means I dealt with electronics. And when I got out, um, I ended up going to work for a company that did control systems engineering. What control systems was or is, is basically it's all the computer systems that run a factory environment. Right. You got a plant, you know, these pumps and motors and conveyors or whatever it is, and it's the computers that control the plant's operations. And uh, from that, sh I was there in a sure, very short period of time, and then I ended up actually opening my own control systems engineering firm because I was a moron and thought I could do it better. No shit. And, uh, and I ended up hiring engineers, but I was never actually an engineer myself. Well, that's pretty crazy, man. I didn't know that. No, I didn't. Did, did yeah, I saw very, somewhere. Let me say it's very, very boring. Really? It was. It was mm -hmm. tragically boring. It really was, and it was a feast and famine kind of scenario because when the economy is good, people are building factories and plants, right, right, and making huge infrastructure investments. And when the economy isn't good, you're starving. You're starving. Yeah. And so it's it's like anything. I mean, it's essentially a contractor's business, right? And you need big jobs in order to support it, and. Uh, and I had that company until um, I ended up selling it at the end of 92. I got very lucky. Oh, shit. And I, and I sold the company. And I didn't become, like, rich, rich, but I came kind of, like, retirement okay. Right. And uh, I didn't work for a full eight years after that. Wow. Uh, just raised the kids. And uh, I started smoking cigars when I was in the Navy. Mm -hmm. But I really got into cigars probably right around 88, 89. Okay. And 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 I was like one of the like I don't want to say original because there were others. Right. But because you but had the original. No, <laughs> but, you don't, but you know you didn't have a way to interconnect. So in other words, I was an Uber cigar geek. Right. But I was literally the only Uber cigar geek that I knew. Right. Okay, because you didn't have the social media and the internet right. where you could actually you know, integrate with these people. Right. So I was the crazy guy at the cigar store that wanted to know everything. This is before the magazine, before the boom, and I started traveling on my own dime, primarily to the Dominican and Honduras, uh, to actually visit cigar factories. And at that time, nobody was doing that. So I was like, you know, d d hey, there's this crazy fat gringo outside. <laughs> he wants to come in. You know, do we like? Why is he here? You know, and it's like. Yeah, so it was literally, so I started spending a lot of money on my cigar addiction, you know, my hobby. Your hobby. It was what it was. And uh, and then I started getting into, remember uh, AOL.com and right. the dial-up yeah. mode? Right. right. And, then I started, and then I started connecting with other, you know, cigar smokers. Right. And then it kind of transitioned to uh, Usenet news groups, which at the time was kind of like... It was kind of like, oh, it's kitty porn and you know, niche <laughs> geeky groups, and there, there was they still exist. They still, they still exist, and we, you know, because it was kind of a little bit. It was really a little subversive. It was a little underground. It was difficult to use. Mm -hmm. You know, it wasn't something that was easy to get into, and uh, and at that point, I started connecting with even more cigar geeks because you know there'd be one guy in Los Angeles that was as geeky as you, right? You know what yeah. I mean, and. Uh, and uh, what ended up happening is... I found this is neat article from the Steve Soccer guy. It takes me an hour to download. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So what was the first factory that you visited? Uh, what would have been the very first factory I ever went to? Yeah, if you can remember. Yeah, let me think about this. I mean, I think the very first factory I ever went to was Villazon. 
Okay. And Villazan was in Cofradia, Honduras. It's just east of San Pedro Sulu. And the reason why I went there first was um, the master cigar maker that uh, it was a guy, well, the owner was Frank Inesa. Mm-hmm. And the master cigar maker that was there our day and day out, his name was Estella Padron. And Estella Padron, actually, your people that listen to this podcast are really familiar with him. He was the <laughs> brother. No, they are. They just don't know they are. Right. He was the brother of Jose Orlando Padron, a Padron cigar fame. No shit. And Estella Padron was his brother, who used to also be at Padron Cigars, but they had had a falling out. No kidding. In like wow. the late 60s that ended up the one brother went the one way. So the cigars that Estella was responsible for were Punch and Hoya de Monterey's. And I've always been a bit of a Connecticut broadleaf whore, dark Maduro cigars. And that factory was probably the one that was the most premier in making that style of cigar. So that would have been the very, that was like the very first one I intentionally went to. Wow. You know? That's pretty crazy. Intentionally, did you accidentally find Well, no, you, you go to these you little fabriquitas, these little chinchasses, right. you know. It's the late 80s. <laughs> yeah. Right. Early 90s. Yeah, things are yeah, a little easier you know, to get around. Yeah, there, were people, there were people making cigars in little factories in New Jersey still. There was a little guy operating in Canada, but it was the first like real cigar factory right. that I went to where there were hundreds of workers. Now, so you wrote a paper on black tobacco. I wrote that. Well, before that, I was writing just stuff on the Internet. I mean, if you if you go to the Wayback Time Machine, you can literally find thousands of things that I wrote right. in ASC. And then what ended up happening is I ended up, uh, I was spending so much money on cigars and cigar-related travel. And I had a friend, John Chunko, who was doing the same. We basically set up a shell company for a website called CigarNexus.com, right. which is now long defunct. And we actually ran it as a nonprofit company. It was basically a tax avoidance scheme. <laughs> we were taking our cigar expenses <laughs> and, and writing them off. And right. writing them off Great the company idea. is what we were doing. And um, we never had any intention on it becoming a profitable endeavor. Right. And, um, and as a result from that, it ended up leading to where I ended up knowing pretty much everybody. Right. Because it was during the boom, and everybody was in the cigar business trying to make money off the cigar business. And I was just this uber geek consumer that really just loves cigars. And I just, I really wanted to visit and learn as much as I possibly could. And then I was using it as content for the website. I didn't know it at the time, but I probably was the original blogger. Right. But this is a full 15 years before the term blogger had even been coined as far as I knew. Um, And as a result of that, I ended up forming personal relationships with a lot of people in the business. And one of the personal relationships I formed was with a gentleman named Lou Rothman, who was the owner of JR Cigar. And during the boom years, JR Cigar was the by far number one cigar retailer in the country. In fact, in some form or capacity, he made money off about 60% of all the cigars sold in the United States. Wow, that's pretty It crazy. was crazy. I mean, a total market lock. In fact, between mass market and handmade premiums, they were buying and selling over a million cigars every single day. Wow. Um, so now you said that when we were talking earlier outside that um, you got into the cigar industry over a conversation of, like, hot dogs. Yeah, well, what it was was Lou... I'm not the brightest guy in the room, but I've always you been... You are right now. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't going to say it, but, I, but I've always been like uber inquisitive. 
mm-hmm. and I've always never been ashamed. One of the things about our business is everyone's always peacocking. Right. They're yes. always trying to pretend they know more than what they actually know. Mm-hmm. Okay. And the reason why is because the consumers expect that out of you. Right. They want exactly. you to be an expert. True. And one of the things that, um, and as you get older, we all realize as we get older we realize how little we actually do know right you know and but i've always been the guy that was really uber inquisitive and not afraid to ask a lot of questions to the point where it was like really annoying to the people that i'd ask questions of and also at the same time i've always been pretty good with writing right um and i wouldn't say i'm an author but i i have a general conversational style in the Mm -hmm. way i write and as a result of that I started to uh, write so much online that Lou Rothman contacted me about writing a book about cigars and tobacco. Because the thing with most of the books that have been published, there's so much in them that is factually incorrect. Right. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And the thing is, the reason why is because the people that write the books don't actually ever do the jobs. Right. Right. You know, they literally there's visit no- someplace for two or three days. They ask some questions. They put together. But it's not the same as the guy that day in, day out, he works in a factory. Day right. in, day out, he grows tobacco. Yeah, That's no his life. Checking. Right. There's no, and there's no book you can go to. Like, if you're interested in bright tobaccos, which are the tobaccos that they use to make cigarettes, there's literally, you can buy the encyclopedia, the chemistry of tobacco, and it's literally 500 pages that tell you everything there is possible to know about bright tobacco. Right. Well, in that book, in the chemistry of tobacco, there's a three-page appendix that was written by one dude in Nicaragua of his opinion of how to grow black tobacco. Right. You know what wow. I mean? There's no one common text that you can go to. So what you have is everything's kind of word of mouth. Mm-hmm. And uh, so most of the books and even the magazine articles that consumers have read now, I'll grant you, they've gotten much better over the years. Right. But... Most a lot of it's not factually true. It's inaccurate. It's kind of true, but not exactly true. And what ends up happening is one thing will get published, and then it gets parroted mm-hmm. every time another article gets written. Right. They reference or back every to the time other right. they're always referencing wrong. back. So it kind of becomes fact. Like like one of the common things that consumers have been told for so many years is that there's no stems in their cigars. Right. That's a very big deal. But the reality is, first off, the stem is actually what goes from the butt of the blade to the stalk of the plant. That's what we consider a stem. Right. That part that starts from the butt of the blade up to the tip of the blade, that's the central rib. Right. Okay, but that's what the consumer thinks of as a stem. In a properly made cigar, there's a stem, one of these central ribs, in every single piece of long filler tobacco, there should be one of those central ribs. We frog strip that tobacco. We pull out about a half to a third of it right. off the back end. And those ribs actually serve two primary purposes. One, they're the highest concentration of nicotine and flavor in the tobacco. So by taking them out, you're actually stealing flavor out of the, the cigar. cigar right. And the second thing, too, is those ribs are what provides the structural integrity to hold the ash on the cigar. Right. And I'm not talking about about the Instagram ash where you get the three inch, four inch ash, you take the great photo. Right. But for a cigar to smoke properly, it needs to be able to hold on to at least three quarters of an inch of an ash solidly because that ash serves as an insulator for the cherry to make sure that you're getting a nice even heating to allow all the tobaccos to burn simultaneously because when a cigar doesn't burn correctly, it's not just an aesthetic issue, it doesn't taste right because you're not smoking all the ingredients in the way the, the ligador, the blender and you to smoke them so those ribs that are in those leaves they kind of work like rebarb okay they actually serve they actually serve to provide the structural support for the ash but nothing that's ever been written 
has ever said that to a consumer. Right. And then what happens is... I've been with people where they pull that piece out and they go, oh, this sucker is wrong. It's right, right. They, they feel like they got cheated, like right. they got robbed. You know, and they'll say, oh, well, this is why the cigar was tight. Well, no, the reason why it now smokes is because you basically created an air channel. The cigar was improperly bunched and you basically did a workaround by pulling that out. Right. Now, what you don't want to have happen, and the reason why we frog strip it is we don't want that half to third to end up in the consumer's mouth because it's very annoying to have it in your mouth. Right. The other thing that you have to worry about is in addition to being the highest concentration of flavor in the nicotine, it's also the highest in concentration of oil. So occasionally what ends up happening is that stem, that rib, will actually light like a fuse. And it'll cause a serious tunneling on you. And the right. further back you go on the blade, the thicker it is, and the higher the likelihood is. So it's always a compromise from our end. How much of it do we strip out and how much do we keep? Right. But oh, wow. ultimately, you want that to be there. And this is the reason why Lou approached me about writing a book. It's like, yeah, I think you should write a book because, you know, nobody, you have no commercial axe to grind. You're not actually in the business. You know all the factories. You know, you've spent the last umpteen years wasting your dollars Yeah, but you time. need perspective because right. there's no, you've got a investment in how it's this It's a consumer's perspective. Right. right. And uh, so I went to talk to him about doing this book that he wanted to do. And look, I don't know. Writing a book about cigars and tobacco, you might as well just light money ablaze. Nobody's <laughs> buying this book. But it was Lou Rothman, and it probably would have been buy a bundle of JR Alternatives and get this really get crappy book. book by Steve Saka, <laughs> right? And uh, so I went to talk to him about writing this book, and we talked about the book for five or six minutes. And then we got into this big argument over what the best brand of hot dog is. For some reason, this crazy guy thinks Nathan's are the best hot dogs on the planet. And it's just his New York-centric viewpoint coming through. But that's just absolute nonsense. Vienna beef's better, boar's head's better. There's a ton of better hot dogs. And then that kind of led into a discussion of the best muscle cars from the late 60s. And because I'm from the New England area, it just devolved into a Bo Sox-Yankees discussion. And... uh, an hour and a half later, he just kind of looked at me and goes, why don't you come work for me? I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, yeah, you, you like to do <laughs> we'll all this. We'll have hot dogs and muscle cars and <laughs> yeah. we'll hang out. It's like, you like all this cigar shit. You like going to these crappy countries. He's like, you know, uh, I'm the world's largest cigar retailer. Uh, you know, you're a cigar guy. Maybe we could actually do, you know, use you. You know what I mean? And I was kind of like, really? And he's like, yeah. And I go, well, you know, Lou, I never got in the cigar business because nobody but people like you make any money in it. Right. There's this grand illusion that the cigar business is, you know, all hot girls and fancy cars and and you know, so, you know, watches and fancy. It, it really isn't. It's a grinded out penny by penny business. It's a working man's business. It really is. The number of people that actually do well in our industry they do well because they put in 30 years of hard work. Right, right. It's, it's not what people think it is. So I said this, and he goes, well, what do you do now? I go, well, I don't do anything. I'm kind of semi-retired. He goes, you don't do anything? <laughs> I do a little bit of consulting. I cons- go to crappy countries and yeah. fuck cigars. I do a little consulting. He goes, well, what do you pay to get to consult? And I said, well, let me tell you how consulting works, Lou. You take whatever's fair, and you multiply it times three because everyone likes to overpay consultants. Right. You hire a guy for a fair number. Nobody cares. Right. You charge three to four times more than what's fair. Well, you got to listen to this guy because we're paying him. <laughs> it's, it's crazy. Of money. It's crazy. So I tell him this crazy number, and he goes, "Huh? What if I hire you for two years of consulting?" 
So that was my actual very first job in cigar business was I was the executive consultant to Lou Rothman, the owner of JR Cigars. Oh, how about that? And, uh, and I have to tell you, in all honesty, I should have paid him because I was an uber geek consumer. Right. And I knew a lot about tobacco through osmosis uh-huh. and a lot about cigar factories through osmosis. But actually understanding the cigar business, I was clueless. Right. And here you have the guy who's making money off 60% of every cigar smoked in the United States, right. and now I'm directly working for him. He's my only boss in the company. It wasn't like I went four levels down. So the truth was, I don't think he looked at it as him mentoring me, but just being around somebody like that, just hearing their thoughts, right? you know what I mean? The amount that you learn from just being exposed to the way they think and what their experiences of it was absolutely incredible and uh, like i said i really should have been paying him right i really should have it's like the american gangster story with denzel washington being the, the chauffeur driver but let me say this, all the techniques not nearly as attractive <laughs> 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 but still at least he didn't same, pay you in hot dogs same concept <laughs> yeah. so i was there until altidus bought the company mm-hmm um, Altidus bought the company, and I stayed for a little while longer. I had a non-compete, and uh, and when I was at JR, I did a whole bunch of different things. I, I ran their e-commerce division. They were losing money, and because I had come from a technical background, I was the logical candidate, Right. and I also was involved in coming up with deals and writing catalog copy and visiting the factory when we were working on the Monte Cristo Afrique or the La Cepcion or the genuine Cuban counterfeit because we were coming up with crazy brands all Mm -hmm. the time. And the other thing too that was really good about being in a business like that every month you know you would have simultaneously 30 to 40 different consumer deals going and you would really start to learn what floated certain consumers boats and you had it wasn't like oh let me try an idea and see if it works we were literally doing 30 to 50 things simultaneously at all times right right so the amount of information that you were getting was just tremendous just you know and because there's different say not all consumers are the same right everybody floats one boat doesn't float another boat so that was also incredibly educational but altidus bought the company and i didn't really see a future for me with altidus um it was just much more corporate environment right and so i ended up deciding to leave and i was in a two-year non-compete if i remember right and that's when uh this crazy kid named jonathan drew approached me and i knew jonathan because we had tried to do business with him when i was at jr he actually made one of the worst cigars ever it was (laughs) mayorga coffee infused he literally shipped they were like twigs in a tin they were completely unsmokable no I mean, they were so wow. bad. Yeah, they were awful. But we had done business with him, and uh, he approached me about, you know, would you be interested in coming into Drew Estate? And I was kind of like, no, not really. And uh, and he was like, well, you know, what if I made you president? And I'm like, yeah, but you're president of nothing, you know, so what does that really mean? <laughs> and, and he goes, well, what if I make you president and I make you a vested partner with no money in? Oh, that that rings that, some that bells, right? Right. right. I, uh, that that that's a pretty good deal. Corporate shares, I mean. corporate shares <laughs> for no cash in. You know, a sweat equity position, and I became president of Drew Estate in two thousand five. And you know, at the time, Drew Estate was already established, but it was a real small company. I primarily only made infused style cigars, none of which I smoked. Right. And um, 
And from there, you know, as a team, we we ended up doing an okay job. And I was with Drew Estate from uh, 2005 through 2013. And I ultimately ended up deciding to leave there for a myriad of reasons. But the biggest one was uh, my wife really disliked living in South Florida. Yeah. We moved six times in the first six years. Oh, wow. All within South Florida? Yeah, all there. Well, because that's where the corporate headquarters were. Right, right. And at that point, I was also the person that was in charge of the factory. So I was spending a lot of time in Nicaragua because, you know, when I left the company, we were at about 1,600 employees. So it was, look, it's like any company like that. It's it's a it's an eighty an hour week job. That's right, just what right, it is, yeah. and it, you know, and literally the sixty eight hour weeks were uncommonly rare. You had far more hundred hour weeks than you had seventy hour weeks. It was right. just the way it was, and uh, she's like, "I'm done with this. I'm moving back home to New Hampshire, and when you get tired of playing around, <laughs> I'll be there. I'll be there waiting." And uh, I tried for eighteen months to bounce between factory operations in Nicaragua, my corporate responsibilities in Miami, and then, you know, my wife in New Hampshire, and in the end, my wife was getting the short end of the stick. Right. And I just, you know, and I, to her credit, she didn't complain. She was probably happy I was gone, but it started to wear on me, and I finally just went in one day and said, guys, I love you. And this yeah. is the point where the company's doing well, because, I mean, look, the company was on the verge of bankruptcy constantly. Right. Because that's one of the things about our business, the more successful you are, the bigger the buildings have to get, the more tobacco you have to buy, right. the more workers you yeah. have to have. So you're you're all you know, real estate's exploding, and this is great. But at the same time, it comes with a lot more. It requires a lot more cash to feed the beast. Right. So, but we had at the point that I was at then, you know, in 2013, we had stabilized. The company had been profitable. We were doing well. Um, but I just finally had to go in one day and say, guys, I I just I have to leave. And uh, they were kind of pissed at me. Right. At first. But in the end, they were my friends. Right. And they understood. They un- and, they understood. And, you know, and it wasn't like I came in and said, guys, you got to pay me three times as much money to stay. Right. Right. You know, oh, you got to give me another 10% of the company or I'm walking out the door. I, I was coming in asking for nothing. Right. I was just saying, guys, it just it just isn't working. It's too and much I've, personally. And I I've tried for the last 18 months, and it's just not working. So I, I ended up leaving. And then we got to the point where... They wanted me to sign. Uh, it was when the attorneys got involved that it all got messed up. You know, they basically wanted me because I had created, I had been the primary creative on all the brands right. from 2005 through 2013. Obviously, John contributed a lot too, but I was really kind of the lead guy, and particularly on all the traditional stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, Liga Pravada, Chateau Real, Undercrown, even those first the beginning things with her, with Willie and Herrera, Esteli and. So they wanted me to sign over my rights to those things. Right. And my attitude was, why would I do that? I'm a vested partner in the company. As far as I'm concerned, I own X percent of all of these things. Right. I said, you guys want me to do this. I'm okay with it, but just buy my shares. Right. And that's ultimately what ended up happening. They ended up buying my shares out. And as part of that, I agreed to, uh, you know, sign the non-disclosures, sign the non-compete, sign the non-solicitation. Right. And I had to basically sit in the wings for two years. But even when I left, there was no illusions. I was going to get back into the cigar business somehow. Right. Because it's what I love. Right. And what am I, I'm going to be a hand model. I mean, there's no future, <laughs> right? So so they even knew that from day one. But I I don't, I don't, didn't have any grand aspirations. Cause, you know, JR, we had 1,500-plus employees. At Drew, we had 1,600-plus employees. 
and you know and I've been in at the first company I sold the engineering the kernel engineering so I've been bought out three times right so which is nice which is nice yeah <laughs> and so I really my 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 desires now are not the same as what my desires were 15 20 years ago right right exactly I mean so and uh, and I waited uh, I worked out my I sat out my non-compete and there were certain things I was allowed to do and certain things I wasn't allowed to do during the two-year period you know I was allowed to work on new products you know but to do them discreetly I right. was allowed to you know secure materials again discreetly and you know not to promote any right, of right but not promote it not make a big deal out of it and then when the two years ended I ended up launching this little family-owned company called Dunbarton Tobacco and Trust and my wife is my partner in it and my oldest son works with me and we're really genuinely just a little podunky small family-owned and operated company uh, the only thing that I have some advantage on is that I just have a wealth of experience from having worked at the largest cigar retailer in the world. Right. And then having had the benefit of being with Drew Estate from basically the near infantile to, you know, when it got to be a really successful company, being a, you know, a component of that success. And it helps. It also hurts you too. Right. Because sometimes I think, you know, when you're a small young business, you wouldn't do you wouldn't start it you wouldn't get into it if you really knew how bad it was really going to be right right so you make a lot of decisions and then you just figure stuff out so in some weird ways my experience also hurts me because it makes me a little bit more cautious about right. what I do, what right. I don't do. You know, do. if you do this, that might happen. Yeah, yeah. You, you, you know the risks better. Right. right. You're, you're right. aware of the pitfalls, right. which you think would be an advantage, but it also makes you a bit more makes apprehensive, a little, a little bit yeah. more cautious, a little bit more conservative. Right. But at the same time, it also gives me the ability to make what I think is a genuinely exceptional cigar. Right. Not that other people can't, but I have a little bit of an inside track to that. Yeah. I have the ability to actually genuinely buy tobacco, sort and select tobacco. I have the ability to actually manage the factory operations. I have I understand how the the distribution cycles work and I understand I'm I'm really good at production planning and so some things, you know, there's an advantage to, it, but there's other things that are a disadvantage also. Right. Well, I heard a, uh, you know, it's funny, is I heard a, a funny story a few years back when I was hanging out with Jesse. Um, I don't remember all the details of it, and I hope that you do, but there was a time that you were driving down the Pan America, and uh, you got pulled over, and obviously you didn't speak a lick of Spanish, but you were translating, and the, and the, the cop wanted your driver's license, and you didn't want to give him your driver's <laughs> license. There was a period, look, in Nicaragua, this, they stopped this because tourism has grown so much, right? but there was a stretch where pretty much, if you were white and you were in a vehicle, you were getting pulled over. Right. And basically the way it works in Nicaragua is when you get a spe- any sort of traffic violation, they take your license. Mm-hmm. And then when you give them your license, you're then supposed to go to the station. And Which then you sucks. pay the fine yeah. to get your license, get your license back. back. But in almost all scenarios, you can pay the fine on the spot. Right. right. Okay. Which as an American is very awkward. Because you feel like, is he setting me up that right, I'm now going to be bribing the cop, right. so I now end up in handcuffs. <laughs> right. But you quickly realize that this is how it works, because at that point, the cops were getting paid anything. And typically, the way these tickets would work out is they would cost you 
$10 on average. Right. And the really greedy cop, he would bang you for 20 Right. And what ended up happening is I got pulled over at one, and the guy wanted $50. Oh, oh shit. And $50 <laughs> was just, come on. Come on. Right. I mean, this is five tickets. I mean, you're, 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 right, you're shaking me down. Shaking this is ridiculous. And so I'm getting into the guy, and I got to the point where I'm really arguing and yelling at him. Right. And, of course, you know, these cops aren't like a cop by themselves in a car. It's like three cops, four cops together, and they flag you down. Oh, and everybody you, wanted you, $10. Right. So, every, so, so I'm having this argument with a guy, and it got to the point where I'm just not giving him 50 bucks. Is that just being greedy? <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. It's, it's a principle Take your $20 bribe and go the fuck you know, away. It's okay to be on the take, right. but we just don't want just too big a taste. I mean, this is just wrong. So I, I'm like getting into this, so I finally get to the point where I'm just telling him, to, you know, I'm sticking my hands out the window, and I'm saying, arrest me, handcuff me, arrest me. Yeah, you know what? I'm right. not giving you know? And it, it, it got to the point where it was so embarrassing for him that his other cop buddy started laughing so much <laughs> that he finally just gave up. He's like, just, just go, man. You're embarrassing me. You're shaming me in front of my cop buddies. <laughs> that you know? is fantastic. Yeah. He probably got out of the car and go, what is I get 50 from this guy. <laughs> it was the same thing like at the border. It's much more controlled now, but right. originally the border crossing from Honduras to Nicaragua legitimately what it should have been a vehicle two people should have been $27 across the border but it was never $27 it was $31 this time it was $32 that time right. it was $34 and one time I got there and the guy was like no he wanted like 60 bucks I'm like come on right. you know, it's like you're, just, you're, you're being ridiculous a little bit of abuse is understandable <laughs> right. you're in a third right. world country right. you're broke you're right. trying to feed your family we get it. That's fine, but right. come on. You're going to charge I'm you more than you a new double? <laughs> you're not calling out sick for the next three weeks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, but. Well, it's kind of interesting because, like, I, you know, I obviously don't have as much experience as you do down in Esteli, but I've been going for a few years. And, I mean, this last time that I went, the economy is definitely up, and it's oh, totally damn. different. It's crazy. The first time I went, there was absolutely no pavement. And it wasn't, it was like 1993. It was right after the free election of Tremora. Right. And there was literally. The first little town north of Managua is called Tipitapa, and it's about 10 kilometers north. Mm -hmm. Esteli is about 150 kilometers from Managua. That entire road from Tipitapa, the last 140-odd kilometers, was unpaved. Right. There was no pavement. When I first went to Esteli, there were barely any cars. There were no stoplights, no pavement, no motorcycles. Most of the women were still wearing skirts. Right. It was literally like it was out of another time. It was wow. so different. And now, literally, I'm in Esteli, and I'm bitching about the traffic. The traffic is yeah. so bad that it's ridiculous. You feel like you're in South Florida, how bad the traffic's going. I mean, it's been good for the economy there. Right. But a lot of it has to do with the paving. Once they pave, because it used to be, because you have a lot of hills you know, small mountains, hills, whatever you want to call it. So, like, for, tr you know, the Pan Americans was the main, it's the main artery through all of Latin America. So the main, the 18-wheelers would have to go on this road, but because none of it was paved, they could not make it up to these up hills. The hill. So every 18-foot tractor trailer or every 18-wheel tractor trailer, they would actually have to chain to a front loader, and they would drag it up the hill. Oh, wow. So wow. this hill that would take literally five minutes to drive up used to take like 35 minutes for them to haul each truck one by one up oh, the hill. And, and, you know, and during the dry season... Uh, the drive now takes about two hours and fifteen minutes. Right during the dry season, it used to take four to four fifteen, wow. and during the rainy season, it used to sometimes take seven, seven and a half hours Jeez. to go from Managua to Esteli. I mean, it's it's the amount of development that's happened in Esteli is stunning. I mean, the first hotel I stayed in, there was only one hotel. It had two rooms. 
my room had a door that was like a castle door. It was like literally like six inches thick. And the lock was a, ti- a, a, a tier of timber that you picked up, <laughs> Pick up and you bolt behind, behind the door, right? But at the same time, it had a giant picture window with no glass and no bars <laughs> and no screen. So you have this massive, unbelievable door. And then you have this giant window that even my fat ass can hop in and out of, <laughs> right. right? And at this point, the gun collection had not happened up in the North Country. Right. Okay, so every, and it's just in you know, all these third world countries. People just like to shoot the guns up in the air in the middle of the night because it's entertaining. So it's the first time I'm in Nestle. It's 93. I got this crazy castle-like door, which has to has to be a reason for this type of security. <laughs> and I got this giant open window that literally, you know, a Sasquatch can come through. And the whole night, it's papa. <laughs> so it's gunfire the entire night, and so I did. I couldn't fall asleep. I'm laying on top of this hard rock, you know, like it's like a, it's like a, it's literally like a, a sacrificial tabla. Okay, it's so hard. I'm dressed in my jeans and my boots because I'm like I gotta run, you know, yeah. and I gotta be I ready to leave. <laughs> finally, like around I don't know four in the morning, I finally drift off to sleep. Next thing I know, <laughs> I know there's coming. somebody in my room oh, shit. Oh, wow. screaming at me at the top of their lungs, like over me, like yelling at me. So I do that whole, you know, drunken wake up where you're swinging your arms around house left or right, right crazy because I got to punch. I got to see. You know, <laughs> right. Turned out that this freaking rooster had flitted into my room through oh the window. And that was caught in my room running around crowing at four in the freaking morning. <laughs> Dude, it was it was such a different world just 25 years ago. It's where that country has come in the last two decades plus is phenomenal. Right. And now it's 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 the safest country in all of Central America to go to. It actually has the lowest violent crime rate, and it's not just a little lower. It's like eight times lower than Costa Rica. No kidding. Yeah. Oh, wow. I mean, I it's still that. the it's still the second poorest country in the hemisphere. Haiti's poorer than Nicaragua. But the standard of living has so tremendously increased right. over the last 25 years that it's, uh, I mean, the tourism's booming now. Um, even though the government is, you know, Sandinista, uh, sometimes the rhetoric is a little rough, but the actual policies aren't. Right. It's actually very pro-capitalism, pro-business, and it's actually, it's a, it's a really good country to do business out of. And, and they're really good people to work with. Uh, the work ethic uh, of Nicaraguan people are amazing. And the other thing, too, that's amazing is the ingenuity level. I mean, literally, here's some barbed wire, here's a piece of used chewing gum and some duct tape, and they build a boiler out of it. I mean, it's just, <laughs> <laughs> it, it really is unreal, the things that you can get accomplished in that country that you just, we couldn't even touch here. Right. It was crazy to me to have 3G in certain spots. Oh, well, that's know? part of you know what part of that is. You actually have better or better cell service in some of those countries because they were so third world that they never put in the infrastructure for landlines. Right. So they never had regular phones. They made the jump initially into mobile. Right. So mobile was really the first phone systems that got installed. So you actually have pretty decent mobile services in a lot of places. Yeah, that's pretty crazy for me, man. I couldn't believe it. You know, normally you jump from from factory to factory and say, "Hey, what's your wi- what's your Wi-Fi? What's your Wi-Fi?" But now you don't really have to do that. You know, first world problems. <laughs> <laughs> um, we got a couple of random questions. Standard questions that we, we like to ask everybody. Boxers. Boxers. No. <laughs> Damn it! All right, go to question two. Question two. 
All right, here we go. Uh, what one person, living or dead, would you like to have a cigar with? Oh, that's easy. Winston Churchill. There you go. He's got to be go. number one on everyone's list, isn't he? No, we've gotten a pretty we're mixed getting, review. Uh, quite the array of answers. Here. Yeah. Really? How could you not pick Witty? Yeah, that's true. I mean, that I mean, guy. I mean, darkest hour. For you know, sure. Savior of the free world. Right. Okay. I mean, and the guy who had good scotch and smokes. Right. Come on, that's a no-brainer. <laughs> Only the best, right? <laughs> Only the best. Only the best. All right. Question two. Best piece of advice uh, anyone ever gave you? Mm. I had a I had an uncle who said, "Be very careful about the woman who you marry, because she will either be ninety percent of your joy or ninety percent of your misery." No shit. And then you still married at nineteen. You know, so yeah. was that was that quote said before or after you it got said married? before? But you know, there you go. it's kind of weird. You know, and it's kind of you know when you get married at such a young age, right? It's obviously a crapshoot, right? And it, right. it works one of two ways: you either grow apart or right. you grow up together, right? In the case of Cindy and I, we grew up together, right? And, you know, and it worked out really well. But it, it could have obviously at that age you have yeah you never because you're not who you are right right at the age of nineteen exactly. So, but yeah, but I, I think that ninety percent. Joy or misery. I think that's true for a lot of people. Yeah, that's pretty crazy. I mean, you know, to think about your story and and how you were so young when you got married and, and with with so young and then having a kid. And it's like two kids before we were twenty one. Right. That definitely wow. changes your your entire perspective. Yeah, grow up fast. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, people are under the illusion that they just for some reason just think you were always rich or you were wealthy or well off, and that just wasn't the case. I mean, we were we were we were getting government checks to survive. We right. Got, when we we got married, we were getting the women, infants, and children's checks. I I literally was earning six hundred and seventy eight dollars a month right. and raising a family of four on six seventy eight. Right. I mean, we were broke, broke, broke. And what's nice about it is it also it makes you appreciative of things later on. Right. And it also, what's really good about it is it's always made, um, my father was an immigrant from Turkey. Mm-hmm. Her her family, her father was a, a, a blue-collar foundry worker in eastern Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we never starved as kids. Both of us had really hard-working fathers, but they had to work really hard for right. the money. Right. But, you know, you basically got two new pairs of shoes every year. They weren't fancy, but you got a new pair of sneakers and a new pair of shoes. Right. I mean, but, I mean, it was hamburger helper, and it was, we never went out to a restaurant as a yeah. family. That's, uh, that, that type well, of money. Heard like, of. Yeah, like, yeah. you know, if it was your 16th birthday, Day, the family didn't go out to dinner. They would just take you out to dinner. They couldn't afford <laughs> to take the whole family to dinner. To go. And, uh, and they're still sweating that payment, right? Yeah, <laughs> oh, I mean, and it's uh, so you know both of us grew up in a in a very frugal, hardworking environment, and that's that's paid a lot of dividends for us, right? Because you're on the same page with a lot of stuff. Yeah, it makes know. a big, big difference. Absolutely. All right, the uh, final question: What's your favorite cigar? Oh, that's I'm biased. Of course, my favorite cigars are my cigars. Okay, so let me let me extend to this. When you talk to a guy that either makes cigars or has cigars specifically made for him, it only makes sense that they're going to be his favorite cigars because true they're getting made what they ultimately like. Right. So you know what I mean? It's kind of a loaded question, right? And that's usually what we anticipate the answer to be is you know the cigar that I make, right? right? But then we ask. What's the cigar that you don't make that's your favorite? Ah, uh, well, that's the, yeah. You know, look, I'm I'm always interested. I'm going to say this is where I get a little bit off track. Right. There are a lot of really good cigars. True. That I don't like because I don't like the maker, or I don't like the factory, or I don't like the business. Uh huh. And I'm a consumer that votes with my wallet. Right. So I don't want to support somebody that I personally don't feel an affinity for for whatever reason. The thing that's really important to me 
is that whoever it is is that it's authentic mm -hmm. so in other words you know like i like the way pete johnson over the years has always handled the position of I'm a cigar designer. Right. You know, this is the work of Papine. This is the work of Jaime. This is now honestly, Pete knows a lot about cigars and tobacco. Right. He's learned this over the years, but he never postured himself in a way that felt fake to me. Right. You know what I mean? So to me, that makes a big difference. So mm -hmm. I mean, for me, you know, I I like the cigars coming out of that factory. I like the cigars that come out of Roma Craft. I like the cigars that you know. I like some of the cigars that Nicholas has been making with his new company, Foundation. You know, I like I like the smaller I like those smaller brands that are more connected rather than the big consolidated commercial style companies right. because what's happened over the years is those big companies used to be all family owned and operated or even if they were bigger companies the people that were in charge of them were actually shareholders in the company and what's happened over the recent last 20 years or so is that really the people that are in charge of them are all suits mm -hmm. they really don't have the same level of interest Right, and they basically are C-suite guys, and that's what their gig is. So they may be the president of this company today, but they're not looking. They're looking to be what they're going to be the president of next. Right, right. The guy that's the exec VP is looking at where am I going to become a president, and that may be in digital publishing, it may be in the liquor industry, it may be, but they're not really cigar right, cigar, cigar guys. So for right. me, it's really important that. It be a real cigar guy or a real tobacco guy, and I'm not even saying that he has to be a guy that knows how to run a factory or knows how to sit down and teach somebody how to bunch a cigar. But he's just really genuinely passionate about it. For me, that connectivity is really important in what I choose to smoke and what I choose not to smoke. Okay, so that was a fantastic, that was a great answer. diplomatic answer. It was. But I'm not gonna let you off the hook that oh. easy. Okay, so. At this current point in time, obviously tomorrow you could have a different opinion and and smoke. Well, let me tell you, totally let me tell you some things I come oh, to my all the time. Okay, okay. Um, I really like the Papin Garcia. It's one of the least popular ones. It's uh, it's it's the blue label. It's a Lonsdale that comes with a cedar wrapper on it. Okay, okay. And I think it's just called the Cedros. I really like that. Um, something that I have in my humidor right now all the time is I have uh, Tatuaje Blacks. Again, kind of in that Lonsdale format. I think he calls it his... I think he calls it like something Lancero or something. Yeah. But it's not really a Lancero. Well, he makes a Petit Lancero. Petit Lancero, yeah. that's the one. Uh, something else that I keep in the humidor all the time, I still keep Padron number ones. Right. And I, it's weird. 1926 number ones, which is the largest size in the Maduro. And I also like the number 35, which is the smallest size. So I like the very largest size on the spectrum. The I like the smallest size in the spectrum. Um, something that's always in my humidor, again, not a very sexy brand anymore for a lot of consumers, but I still think the Arturo Fuente Don Carlos is just one of the best balanced, elegant, refined cigars. That's always in my humidor. Um, I, I always keep, like, at Aroma Craft, my favorite Aroma Craft are Intemperance. Right. I smoke Intemperance. It's the one that I get, that I really, really enjoy. So I, I smoke quite a few. Those are always in the humidor. So there is quite a variety of other things I smoke. I will admit easily 95 and i also still smoke habano so i went through a period where i only smoked habanos for about six or seven years and that was all i smoked and it was really more so because i really liked stronger cigars and back in the early mid 90s there weren't a lot of strong cigars in the marketplace right. a partagas was considered a strong cigar right okay and today on a 10 point scale a partagas is like a three yeah so back then uh 
uh, Habanos, Pargas, Lusitania, or a Bolivar Bellicoso Fino were genuinely strong cigars. Now, Nicaraguan tobaccos have so outpaced that octane level that now most Cuban cigars, I would call most Cuban cigars to be mild to medium. Right. The only ones that really have any sort of like oomph are some of the limited edition releases, but for the most part, so I don't smoke as much Habanos, but I still, Punch Punch is still in my rotation, and H. Upman Sir Winnie is still in my rotation, you know, Ramon Aoni Specially Select is still in my rotation, but I might smoke two a week of those cigars, and I smoke a lot of cigars, I'm smoking a quick day, I'm smoking six, wow. most days I'm smoking nine, I, I smoke a lot of cigars, so, uh, you know, but uh, and then a lot of other cigars I'm smoking is uh, you're always smoking cigars for work. You're right. smoking new things that you're working on, and you're smoking different inventories of tobacco to see how similar they are to what you were using previously. And uh, you're just kind of always you know quality control because you know you know I like anybody else. There are certain sizes in sober mesa. Cervantes Fino and Short Churchill, in my opinion, are the two best. Right. I don't smoke a lot of the Torpedo Tiempos. So I have to bring myself to go out of the way to say, okay, let me smoke let some of these Torpedo Tiempos, like, yeah. you know, to make sure that everything is smoking the way it should be. You know, like one of the most popular sizes in Mi Querida is Pequeño Pequeño. It's a 4x44. It's my least favorite one, personally. I would much rather smoke the Gordita, which is a 4x48. So mm. yesterday... I smoked the Bacano Bacano because it wouldn't be in my normal rotation. Right. Mm -hmm. I'd rather smoke the Gordita or the Ancho Largo, which is a more standard Toro size. Um, Todos Las Dias is a bit of a struggle for me because Todos Las Dias is a lot of nicotine. And because of how I smoke, I, I'm smoking. And then when I finish that cigar, I smoke another cigar right away. So I like cigars that are strong enough that I find them satisfying. But I don't like for them to be overwhelming because right. I'm moving to my You're next moving cigar. To something next. So like... If I smoke like a, a Neanderthal from Skip or a, a, a Double Ajero Chisel from Lito Gomez, I think both are exceptional cigars that I enjoy immensely, but I can't just instantly light my next cigar. Right. So it doesn't fit my normal smoking pattern gotcha. to smoke those two cigars, even though I, I find them to be exceptional. It's only a certain moment where I'll smoke them. And it was even, it's even the same thing with, you know, when I was smoking. And I still, and I still smoke a lot of Liga Pravadas. Um, you know, because, you know, I, I smoked Liga Provada almost exclusively for many of the years when I was with Drew Estate. Right. Um, but when I left the company, I left with, I don't know, seven or 8,000 Liga Provadas. That's and a pretty big number. Yeah, well, look, I was smoking, you know, seven, eight, <laughs> nine, like, ten a day. That's like four days of It really was my personal cigar for many years. And, uh, but, so I'm still smoking from the inventory that was prior to my departure from the factory. Right. I, I don't smoke any of the new ones, and the reason I don't smoke any of the new ones is because consumers are always asking me, what's my opinion? And I don't want to have an opinion. Oh, so it's easier to just say, I it, don't I just this. I just intentionally just go out, because the thing is, they should be as good, if not better. That right. should be what's happening, because right. the key people are still in the factory to do the day-in, day-out work. Consumers, whether they are or they aren't, there's a perception by some that they are not. Right. I don't know whether that's a fair perception or not a fair perception. But at the same time, I also know I'm probably not a fair judge. You think I'd be the fairest judge, but I'm also human. So I have a certain element of bias where I'm going to just naturally think right, that, that they were better back better before. Back before right. right? And, and I have to and I have to be cognizant of that. I mean, I'm I'm human like anybody else, and so I just I just intentionally decided because I was so closely associated with the brand. 
that I was just simply not going to smoke any of the new production. Now, will I smoke All Out Kings? Will I smoke the new Underground Sun Grown? The things that they come out with, there were I had absolutely nothing to do with. Absolutely, I'll smoke those as any other consumer with. Mm-hmm. But I still smoke a lot of Ligas. The bad part for me, though, is because all of mine are so well-aged, they don't have the oomph right, right. that I desire out of them. Out of a cigar now. Uh, the, you know, I mean, they're beautiful. They smoke great. Those cigars were impeccably made. But they don't give me the same kind of sensation. So I find myself today to get that broadleaf sensation that I like, I find myself smoking the Mikirita. Right. It kind of serves as my personal replacement for that. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, I, uh, I try... What's weird about it is everyone would think that us in the business would be more familiar with all the cigars, but the reality is the, the cigar consumers are actually way more in touch with all the different products and brands that are in the marketplace. Because, I mean, everyone thinks that you're paying attention to what everybody's doing, but the reality is you're kind of caught up in your own little right. circle. It's impossible yeah. to do. It's impossible. There's too many. There's so much that actually in a lot of ways, it's one of the reasons why when I go to a store, and it's the same thing that happened with you today, Mike. I'm saying, Mike, you pick it out for me. Right. right. You know what I mean? You know your brand the best. You know, you, you have some idea of what I like to smoke. You, you choose the one you think I ought to smoke, which is the one you think is going to be the best representation. And as a result, he gave me a very good cigar. Right. You know what I mean? And I enjoyed it immensely. Had I gone in there and just taken a random stab at it, I may not have may been not as have lucky. The one, yeah, my right. Right. came out as well. All right. So, uh, but I do, I do get a lot of, I get a lot of advice for consumers, and and I do pay attention. You know, I'm on social media. If I see something that's getting a lot of buzz, well, that piques my interest. I, right. You know, I go out of my way, like you know what, let me let me try one of those. Let me see what that's all about. That's pretty funny because I actually do the similar concept with uh, reps or brokers that walk in. So if they come in and say, you know, what do you want to smoke? I always say, you know, well, you got one shot at this, so give me the best cigar that you think you have in your humidor, the cigar that you think I'm going to enjoy the most. Right. If not, if you give me something that's going to be, you know, lackluster, I'll probably pass on the entire thing. So, I mean, that's pretty intelligent. Uh, well, we saw Skid Wars in a minute, but what are we smoking oh, today? Oh, that's true. We didn't talk about that. He, this is very good. It's the first time I've had one. Yeah, so what are yeah. we smoking, Steve? Uh, this is the, actually the Mi Querida. Mi, Mi Querida? Yeah. Mi Querida mm-hmm. translates to my mistress. It has multiple different meanings. You know, cigars are my mistress. Right. Because, you know, such a big part of my life. Right. You know, if uh, another brand that I'm well known for was my wife, then this could be considered my mistress. Right. Um, it has a little bit of a dirty profile, so I like my mistress a little dirty. I always call it my side bitch. Yeah. Well, <laughs> actually, it's not Nic- quite the same ring. Well, let, me, <laughs> let me say this. In Nicaragua, it does have a little bit of a different meaning. Right. Um, you know, it translates literally to my love or my dear, but it's normally meant to refer to you as my mistress. In Nicaragua, we... it's. In Nicaragua, there's nine women to every man in the country of Nicaragua. So it's very common because I'm of the moving. war. I'm, I'm moving. It's a combination. I, it's I'm a combination of the war. <laughs> combination of the war. The fact that men die younger, right? You know, because it's a country where you have to work really hard for your money, and then also illegal immigration to other countries. So the combination of the three, there's just far less men. So it's a very common practice. It's a common practice in most Latin cultures, but even more so in Nicaragua that. A guy will have a mistress, right? Okay, and not only will he have a mistress, the wife will know that he has a mistress, and everyone will know that he has a mistress. So in Nicaragua, what happens is the wife kind of has like approval disapproval of who the mistress can be because she doesn't want the mistress to bring shame to the family. Right. And I'm not saying that they hang out for family dinners together, <laughs> right? But it's kind of like the wife's like, okay, he's going to have a mistress. Everyone's going to know who his mistress is. So I want the mistress to be. 
not right. some tramp. Right, right. So in Nicaragua, the Miquerita is actually the girl that neither the wife nor the mistress would approve of. Is who the Miquerita <laughs> is. Yeah. yeah, so it actually has a little bit of an undertone. Here. And it's actually kind of funny because when I first was proposing the name and the and the and the because in most factories seven percent of the employees are women in most handmade cigar factories and all the people in packaging they're all women and when they first got it they saw it like really we, we're putting this on a cigar, <laughs> cigar. You know, it's like it's like you're putting the word slut on a cigar he does know that right you know like crazy gringo like, calm down, you know, it doesn't have the same connotation every place as it has here in Esteli right you know awesome. but it's uh, awesome. Connecticut Broadleaf I would describe it medium to full, probably like a seven out of a ten point scale. It's that traditional earthy. It's really, it's the same style. This is my daily style of cigar. It's very smooth, very good. Yeah. Well, part of it is I I like it to be, again, I don't like cigars that bite me. Right. Occasionally I do, mm-hmm. but I don't typically. I like I like cigars that uh, enough flavor to satisfy, but at the same time I move on. You know, over time to to the next cigar. So, but uh, I don't know. I always I always tell people that you know cigars are very personal. And this you're making this out of Noxa, right? Yeah, this is made out of Noxa with, with a Raul Diesel. So uh, it's arguably I will say it's the best cigar they make in the factory. Right. And they'll tell you the same thing. Actually, it's it's one of the it's the best cigar they probably have ever made at that particular factory. That's awesome. Very good. Uh, would you like to tell people how to get a hold of you? Yes. Social medias, emails? You, you, yeah, I'm easy. It's just Steve Saka, S-A-K-A. You just can find me on Facebook. You What's can find your, me on Instagram. And Steve Saka's your Instagram? It's actually just Steve Saka. Yeah, really he was boring. easy to find. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, really yeah. boring. Yeah, you, can, you can Google me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do you know who I am? Right. Do you know? <laughs> Look me up, bitch. <laughs> right? No doubt. No doubt. Well, I mean, that pretty much concludes it, right? Yeah, that's it. That's everything well, we Steve, have. Uh, you know, we, we I, appreciate I know that, you taking the time. Yeah, thank you so much and for coming. Let me say this. This is actually the coolest room in the building. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it, yeah it actually panned out. The AC kind of kicked back on. Yeah. Too. yeah, yeah it's it's, really it's nice. pretty comfortable yeah, in everything here. Everything was a thought out. Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It was like a man. master plan. <laughs> it was. <laughs> Your poor wife's out there just sweating yeah, I mean, terribly. <laughs> you know, you had no idea that you were going to come on to the podcast today, and uh, I appreciate you being so gracious and, and coming on. So, Dude, it's free advertising. you kidding me? Right? <laughs> exposure is exposure. I'll, I'll give you the 100 bucks after the show's off. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's it, man. Uh, that's it. Thank uh, you. Thank you, everybody. Uh, your little... Uh, oh, yeah, we appreciate uh, any feedback you can give us. Uh, so please, you know, write us on Facebook on our Facebook group or, you know, if you want to email us or anything on the reviews. Do me a favor, Right, Sokka sucks. If you, yeah. if you could put Sokka sucks, <laughs> that way we, Sokka we sucks, know exactly please. what episode that you're referring to. Also, um, you know, if you like what we're doing, please tell uh, your friends about it so that they can listen as well. Uh, and then that's it. Thank and you and then that's it. And that's it. All right, gang, that's it. Show's over. Time to put out that cigar and get back to work. Ain't nobody going to do it for you. Everybody get hustling. <laughs>